Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. My guest is Eric Ting, who is the artistic director of Cal Shakes, California Shakespeare Theater, which operates out of the Bruns Theater in Orinda. The show currently on is The Winter's Tale, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, Shakespeare. I want to start by kind of going back and talking about what's been happening with Cal Shakes and with Eric Ting since March 2020. I've been talking to a lot of artistic directors, and I will continue to talk with artistic directors about how their theater companies dealt with this. You are a summer show, so it wasn't as if you had a close down on March 14th, 2020. What was going on? You had the season ready to roll, and what happened on that second week or the end of the first week of March? We held our fundraiser. I don't even remember the exact date of the fundraiser, but we held our fundraiser just a few days before the shutdown came into effect in the Bay Area. And and occasionally I'll joke that we were the last big party held in the Bay Area before everything changed. You're right, Richard, because we were a summer theater, we were not in production at that particular moment in time. But we were looking at just beginning to ramp up our staffing for that summer's 2020 season. Um, I did actually have a play at ACT, Gloria, which was disrupted by the shutdown, and that had to close early. But as far as Cal Shakes is concerned, you know, I think we began conversations fairly shortly after it became clear that this wasn't going to be a temporary thing and um, made the decision, the very difficult decision, fairly early on, actually. I think we were one of the first summer theaters to announce that we were canceling our season. And we just were tracking the science, and we just recognized that it was unlikely that we as a society were going to be able to get a hold of things, to get control of things in time for our summer season, not to endanger not just our audiences, but our artists as well and our staff. What was happening over with ACT? Did you suddenly get a panic call from Pam McKinnon <laughs> saying we're shutting down? Not from Pam. I think Andy Donald reached out. It was so touch and go in that moment. Everyone was really uncertain. I think I was in New York City. I was actually in New York City at the time. Um, I had flown out to New York for a workshop immediately after our fundraiser and got a call from Andy Donald. And Andy was like, listen, so it looks like we might be calling the show at the end of this week. And then I got another call from him. He's like, nope, it's actually going to happen now. And then he was like, at the end of this show tonight. And then, nope, actually, we're not even having the show tonight. So it was that kind of sense of unspooling, unraveling, kind of in that swift way that I think sometimes when we're confronted with something scary, something uncertain, that all we can do is respond. Did you immediately fly back? To the Bay Area? I did, actually. So I'll tell you the funny story, because this is a funny story. So the funny story goes something like this. My family had actually flown to China to visit my mother's uncle. So it was my grand uncle, who was 105 years old at the time. And we went to go visit him. 
And wouldn't you know it, we were visiting him in a hospital in Wuhan, China on December 26th. Wow. 2019. (laughs) So we were in China for much of December, touring and traveling Shanghai, Wuhan, Beijing. And we were there visiting him towards the end of our trip. And that was December 26th. Like we were waiting in line in a hospital. There were crowded elevators. It was like all like in retrospect, kind of like what it was. But then we headed back to the U.S. just before New Year's Eve. And when we got off the plane in Japan at a layover, I have a very distinct memory of looking at my phone and seeing a notice pop up that said the Singapore airport was closing access to all flights from China. And I was like, what's going on there? We looked at each other, my wife and I, and we were like, oh, who knows? So then we came back that January and we were here most of January and February as things were kind of developing up in the Northwest and also here in the Bay Area. And then shortly after our fundraiser, uh, the day after, in fact, I flew to New York City for this workshop and New York City, it was all starting to kind of like get really intense and like folks were no longer taking the subways and the streets were pretty empty and our playwright got sick, not of COVID, we don't think, but he got sick. And just because he was sick, it just kind of added to the anxieties, as you might imagine. We ended up canceling that workshop midway through. I hopped on an early flight back to the Bay Area and landed here. And then, and this is where the story gets maybe a little sad, but just like a few days later, we got a call from my mother who informed us that she was just diagnosed with stage four cancer. She had traveled with us and been staying with us all through January and February and um, had flown back to West Virginia around the time that I flew to New York City. And she went to go see the doctor and the doctor just informed her of this. Um, So my family and I hopped onto an airplane fairly shortly after that to fly to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to see my mom. And this is what happened. We flew to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the plane stopped on the tarmac. And we were sitting on the tarmac for what must must have been 90 minutes to two hours, and we weren't quite sure what was going on. And then the next thing I know, these two people in full PPE gear, like the full like white, like and plastic face shield and like, like, you know, it looks like something out of a movie walks onto the airplane and they escort a passenger who was sitting five rows in front of us off the plane. And then the flight attendant gets on the phone or whatever, then says the PA system and says, we just wanted to let you all know that there might have been exposure to an, a contagion on the airplane, and we need you all to fill out these forms immediately. And they were running up and down the aisle, handing out these pieces of paper, which were essentially contact tracing forms, and then telling us that we weren't allowed into the airport and that they were sending buses over to collect our baggage and to collect us and to send us to hotels so that we can quarantine for the next two weeks. And one thing led to another. And the next thing I know, because the airport at the time didn't know what to do about this, Like no one really knew what was going on. The Pittsburgh airport didn't know what to do with us. And so they ended up letting us get picked up by a family member so that we could quarantine in a hotel in West Virginia. And my sister came and picked me up, picked us up. And my sister, who's a physician, she was laughing and she made this joke. She said, it would be just your luck that you would be in Wuhan in December, in the Bay Area in January and February, in New York City in March but that you'd have to fly to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to get COVID. Did you guys test positive or? No, we were all fine. And even the passenger that was on the plane ended up not testing positive for it. It was just some kind of food poison. But that was my kickoff to this extraordinary year of interesting times. What happened with your mom? Well, she went through treatment. And I think we were lucky enough to be able to be with her most of 
of the year last year. She passed away this past February, though. So she lived another year. Sorry for your loss. Thank you. Well, getting back to... Cal Shakes. From our perspective, you know, Sarah and I very quickly were like, okay, this is a situation that is unlike anything we've ever encountered before. We knew that we weren't going to be able to have a season. We knew that that would have ramifications as far as the organization was concerned. You know, we had to immediately call all the artists that were con- contracted for that summer. We had to call all of the seasonal staff that were contracted for that summer. We had to inform them all that the season was being canceled. We started holding regular full staff meetings to let folks come in and to um, be able to communicate to them as much information as we had, not just around what the organization was planning, but also around what we were learning about the pandemic, about the virus, uh, what we were learning about unemployment, what we were learning about, like there was just all of this information that we felt needed to get out. Um, we really started from the very beginning of this saying like what we wanted to do as leaders of this organization was be as people first as we could be in this moment. It meant making a lot of tough decisions. What we ended up doing was we ended up furloughing about two-thirds of our full-time staff, but that was in order to save resources so that we could keep as many people on health insurance as possible for as long as possible. And we were able to do that through October before it became clear that this was not a thing that was going to go away. At that point, fairly early on, depending upon which theater company it was, some theater companies immediately realized We've got to keep ourselves in front of the public, and they switched to streaming. From what I can see of Cal Shakes, it wasn't until Black Lives Matter that you began streaming, or am I wrong? You're talking about in terms of like Zoom programming or virtual programming? Yeah. Yeah, no, there was very little feedback at the time from the artist unions around permissions for streaming work. And so we did not have permission to stream productions of like archival recordings of past productions. So again, at the time, we were mostly concerned with caring for our community, like trying to, to figure out how best to support not just our furloughed staff, but also all the artists who really experienced the sudden and catastrophic loss of livelihood. And so that was where our focus was, was in creating spaces to support folks in those early, early months. We were by no means the only organization doing this, but it felt like very important to us to focus first on that. We would not have been doing programming at that time of the year anyhow, because our season wouldn't have started for another month or two. Like we did do some programming, but the programming I would say was specifically support related. So we invited um, a couple artists to lead a seminar on unemployment for artists so that the folks that lost work could begin the process of applying for unemployment to try and help alleviate at least one of the anxieties that was facing all of us at the time. And we were sort of like reconnecting with our community partners to see what their needs might be and what ways we might be able to support. I mean, you know, it was a largely quixotic effort, I think, in the grand scheme of things, and certainly in hindsight, because there was just so much happening. But that was where we were focusing our effort. Eric Ting, then came Black Lives Matter, and George Floyd. And I noticed that there were seminars online, Zoom seminars from Cal Shakes. Yeah. You know, I think one of the questions that we were ruminating on in the immediate aftermath of canceling our seasons was what was a theater without theater? And many of us who work in the theater genuinely believe that one of the sort of cornerstones of the art form is the live experience. And so to have that stripped away from us so suddenly and so utterly was really heartbreaking. 
And Cal Shakes, as you probably know, Cal Shakes had been involved in a long process of focusing on equity-based, anti-racism-based initiatives, dating all the way back to the Me Too town hall that we produced at Berkeley Reps Space, and following with the year-long training that we offered to members of the Bay Area theater community in transformative justice and the role that transformative justice could play in supporting the healing and the evolution of our community. Yes, so when George Floyd's murder happened, you know, I think we were one of the first theaters to release a statement in the Bay Area about that, one of the first, and was shortly followed by many, many statements from many, many theaters, which triggered a whole other movement. So it wasn't just the Black Lives Matter movement, but also as far as the theater world was concerned, there was also um, the We See You White American Theater statement that was released, of which I was actually a signatory on, and then followed by the demands that came after that, as well as the living document of BIPOC experiences in the Bay Area theater. And it was a kind of one, two, three, right? That for us at Cal Shakes, I think, for all of our efforts to change our organizational culture, to change the practices of theater in service of sort of a more humane and inclusive community, right? That really centered belonging. I think what we all realized in that moment was we were still largely operating within systems that were and needed to be confronted. And so we decided in that moment to actually focus our resources, not necessarily on creating art, but on examining the art that we were making, on examining sort of like our assumptions around not just the art, but around our assumptions around just all things like our community, our culture. We are a theater and as such, we are a reflection of the world around us. We are a reflection of our communities. And it felt really important in that moment to be looking inwards and to begin a kind of period of reflection. And so that launched our direct address series, which is what you're referring to. And the direct address series has since developed into a multi-pronged programmatic effort to support discomforting, challenging, courageous conversations in the field. And it started with a series called Anti-Racism and Allyship. And then we introduced the series called Resisting Shakespeare. And then just this past year, I've introduced a new series called Sowers and Seeds. Is all of this available streaming now? It's going to become available. There are certain programs that have been made available, but the rest of them will become available with the launch of our audience circle, which is a kind of membership program. But it's really a way for our patrons and our audiences and our supporters to invest in the sustained life of the organization across all the programs that we do. That's calshakes.org. People can find out more, right? Yeah, totally. Eric Ting, and then a year passes. At what point did you realize we are going to have a 2021 season? We don't know when. What should we do? As the year was progressing, as 2020 was progressing, a lot of the conversations, obviously, as you might expect, followed the waves. So at a certain point in time, it was feeling like things were settling down and it allowed a little, an amount of optimism moving forward. And then a wave would happen and then you'd have to pull back and you'd have to get more thoughtful about it. I think what we had always known from the very beginning, and really this happened through the summer, right, was that as a theater with an outdoor venue, that we had a resource that was really uniquely beneficial, not just to Cal Shakes, but potentially to our community as a whole. Um, we actually were able to have some outdoor events at the Bruns in 2020 during that summer because they were outdoor events. 
they weren't large ticketed events or anything like that, but we were able to begin to explore, put into practice a lot of the safety measures that we've developed over the last year, just to see what it meant to be able to kind of congregate in an outdoor setting. So, you know, I think what was happening then was we started having this conversation about like, well, what does it mean again to be a theater when theater was not available to us? And what I've always appreciated about the nonprofit theater and what has always drawn me to the nonprofit theater is that it's less the art. I love the art, don't get me wrong, but it's really always been that these these institutions are cultural pillars of a community. Like they are nonprofit arts and culture organizations that are there to serve the public good. And so from our perspective, it was like, well, let's think about it in that context rather than thinking about um, think about it from the point of view of hoarding. What does it mean to share resources and to begin to build longstanding relationships with other organizations so that we could, over time, feed a kind of resilience in our community that was genuinely put to the test this past year and a half. And so Sarah and I came up with this vision of shared light. The shared light initiative is takes its name from a phrase that I use to describe the aesthetic of directing work at Cal Shakes. The sort of short story there is that I came to Cal Shakes from Long War Theater, and up until my time at Cal Shakes, I had done very little directing in the out of doors. The majority of my work as a director were in indoor theaters, where the director has kind of total control over the experience of the audience through the play. Like when we turn the lights out, we turn the lights out. Um, and then I got to I got to Cal Shakes, and the very first set of preview performances that we had for the very first show of my very first season, I was looking around. And I went, I, I talked, I said to Susie Falk, who was the managing director at the time, I was like, so tell me again, what time is curtain at Cal Shakes? And she's like, oh, it's in about 10 minutes. And I was looking around, I was like, it is broad daylight. <laughs> and what was clear to me was in that moment, right, that I needed to, I needed to divest myself of an amount of control that I was accustomed to having as a director, and instead really look at creating work that was performed in the shared light of the sun. When you come to see a, a show at Cal Shakes, most of the summer, you're coming to see a show around a 7.30, 8 o'clock curtain. And the audience and the actors and the stage and the background that those hills are visible to everyone at all times. And it changes the way you think about storytelling. It changes the way you think about making theater. You're not really directing anyone to look at one thing in particular. You're saying, no, instead, let's embrace the fact that we're all in this together. We're all in this place together, and what does it mean to take a journey together? And to really hold that, not just at the beginning of the play, but as the as darkness descends, as the stage lights come up, as you hurtle through whatever narrative is happening on that stage, you hold that idea that we're really all in this together. And that's kind of where the Shared Light Initiative came from. And so what Sarah and I determined in that moment that we wanted to do was we wanted to find a way to share our most valuable resource at Cal Shakes, which is the Bruns Amphitheater, that extraordinary outdoor venue with as many other arts and culture organizations and direct service organizations as we could find who would be interested in having access to an outdoor venue to reconnect with their audiences and their patrons and the people that they served. And that launched our season of Shared Light this last summer of which The Winter's Tale is the kind of culmination of. Um, but over the last summer, we've had um, an extraordinary array of programs happen out there at the Bruns. Destiny Arts came out um, and presented their public performance. 
at the Bruns along with Bandaloop. We've had West Edge Opera do their festival out there. We've had the Berkeley Symphony perform up there. We've had multiple dance companies, including, you know, young kids dancing up there. We've held our conservatory up there. We've held concerts up there. We did Good Medicine, an evening of native stand-up comedy up there. And it's been a really kind of delightful, dynamic, and delicious summer for all the things that we've been facing and confronting. Eric Ting, you made an interesting comment there. When a play starts at an outdoor venue during the summer, it's light, and then somewhere around Act Two, Mm -hmm. it's dark, which means a director actually has to figure out how Act One and Act Two are different, because Act Two, you've got more control over the setting. Absolutely. It's actually part of why we chose Winter's Tale, Richard, because those two halves of that play are so different. It felt, as much as anything, a kind of evocation of what we love about the bronze. What do you do as a director? You just kind of give up on the lighting in Act 1 and then suddenly go for Act 2 at a certain point? I mean, do you get on the almanac and go, okay, this is when the sun sets? (laughs) No, you can't really. I mean, like, until this season, we actually had different curtain times, too. So until this season, our weeknights were 7.30 curtains and our weekend nights were... 8 p.m. curtains, right? And so it actually meant that in a way, when you were thinking about how you directed the first half of the play, there really was no control. There was no, you could not exact that level of control. You couldn't make a lighting design for every week of the run that adjusted to the wane and waxing of the sun. So really what you're limited to as a director is finding ways to create a theatrical vocabulary that doesn't depend on lighting in the same way that many plays do. And I will just say it's one of the reasons that it's a Shakespeare theater. Like, I mean, listen, Shakespeare was written to be performed outside. Most of those early plays of Shakespeare's were written to be performed in the Globe Theater, which was an outdoor venue. And it wasn't until Blackfriars that we started to see Shakespeare's dramas being written for indoor venues. So this notion of Shakespeare in the out of doors, it's like, it's there, it's present. There's like, you know, you can see the influence of that on the plays and on the choices of the plays. You know, that's part of what you get from it. So like a little director lesson here, I guess, is, you know, normally as a director, when I have control over lighting, I'll create the scene changes, right? The lights are going to go out at the end of a scene and they're going to rise somewhere else on the stage in a different scene. And you can create that kind of vocabulary on stage when you have that kind of control. On a stage like the Bruns at Cal Shakes, what I have found personally to be more effective is when the scenes overlap. And you'll see that in my directing a lot at the Bruns, where one scene is still finishing up when the, as the next scene is beginning. And it creates a kind of almost crossfade in space as opposed to a crossfade through light. That's cool. Let's get to the winter's tale, Eric Ting. Was this always going to be part of the 2020 season? And what is this adaptation compared to Shakespeare? Is it just shorter? To answer the first question, no, this was never intended to be part of our 2020 season. As we were looking at 2021, you know, there were a lot of reasons for the season of Shared Light, not the least of which was that our organization, like many arts organizations, it's not going to be like you flip the switch and suddenly you're back where you were 
before the pandemic, right? Most of us have to rebuild in some way, shape, or form. If it's not rebuilding our staff and capacity, it's rebuilding our budgets, it's rebuilding the way even we think about how we produce because COVID is not going away anytime soon. So there's a kind of new normal that I think we're entering into that just has to do with like, just this is just going to be what it's going to be. And so we as producing organizations need to adapt from our perspective, we knew we wanted to do one production this season. We knew that what we really wanted to do was we wanted to focus as much of our resources on people as possible. And so that meant not doing a new play this season that would have come with royalties and fees. So because we were a Shakespeare theater, it made a lot of sense to select a Shakespeare drama for the season. Because we were only doing one this season, it was also really important to Sarah and I think our board that I be the director of that production. And so I didn't want to take one of the Shakespeare's from last season and simply direct it. So instead, what we're doing with the majority of the plays from our 2020 season is we are committing to artists over the next two to three years to commit to those projects over the next two to three years. So they will come back to Cal Shakes. They're not gone forever. But as far as this year is concerned, we started from this notion that it should be a, a, a play by William Shakespeare, and it should be something that I direct. Um, it should be cast with all local artists and all local designers and all local company to really just feed what modest resources we have back into the arts economy, the arts ecology of the Bay Area. And we just wanted to put on a really good show. But you know, with me, it's sort of like when we were thinking about what the title of the play which play we would do, it was really also very important to me to make sure that we weren't simply just picking, you know, the obvious comedy, but that as ever, I've always said, right, at Cal Shakes, we don't go to Cal Shakes to escape the world. We go to Cal Shakes to invite the world in. And we wanted to find a title that really allowed us to wrestle with all the many things that you and I have been talking about in this conversation that have transpired in our community over the last year and a half. And we kept coming back to Winter's Tale. There's something about the notion that this this narrative, this play, right, experiences this long winter, right? The sort of like the darkness of the first half of the Winter's Tale suddenly opening upon the lightness of the second half felt like a very vivid invocation of what we wanted this moment to be in our world. And it hasn't turned out that way, perhaps. Like, you know, I think we were feeling it. Like, we felt it a little earlier than we thought we would back in June. What was it, June 15th? We were all feeling it back then, right? That kind of, like, that sense of optimism and that sense of, like, relief as it seemed like we were finally getting control of things. And we now find ourselves in a more delicate relationship with this virus than we have been in the past. Um, And hopefully it's something that we'll be able to sustain moving forward. The Winter's Tale is not performed that often. For those who are new to a Shakespeare play that isn't performed as much as the others, many of the others, kind of what's going on in the play? Well, for those of us that don't know The Winter's Tale at all, there are two things about The Winter's Tale that most people will have heard of at some point in their lives. The first thing is that The Winter's Tale is the play about a statue. Hermione's statue at the end of the play, like that might help ring a bell. The second thing is probably Shakespeare's most famous stage directions because he had so few of them. And that's the stage direction exit pursued by a bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. It's great. It's amazing, actually. And there's like, and there's like, there are like, like, there's mounds and mounds and mounds 
of sort of like essays and academia around specifically that stage direction. It's kind of really amazing. It's really a thing. But so, so the kind of cliff notes of the Winter's Tale is the Winter's Tale focuses on the king of Sicilia. His name is Leontes. And he is married to the daughter of the king of Russia, whose name is Hermione. And at the beginning of the play, they have been hosting Leontes' boyhood friend, Polixenes, who is the king of far-off Bohemia. And what happens very quickly in this play, in a way that doesn't happen as quickly in any of Shakespeare's other plays, is that it becomes very, very clear very early on that Leontes is deeply jealous of Polixenes and Hermione, that he has convinced himself that his wife and his boyhood friend are having an affair. And he unspools into a kind of jealous paranoia very quickly in the play. And the next thing you know, he is having his right-hand man assassinate the king of Bohemia. And this person ends up basically saying, nope, not going to do that, and runs off with the king of Bohemia when he tells the king of Bohemia what the king of, of Sicilia is planning. And so the two of them run off, and that leaves only Hermione to bear the brunt of Leontes' wrath. And it's a lot. And he imprisons her. He announces to all the people of Cecilia that she is an adulteress, that she has done this horrible thing, and that she has committed treason. There's a whole trial that he holds for her. And in the end, her innocence is revealed, but not before the death of their son, and not before he exiles their newborn daughter to be abandoned in a far-off land, and too late even to save Hermione, who also in the play dies after she learns of the death of their son. And that's the end of the first three acts of Shakespeare's Winter's Tale. It's a Greek tragedy. I mean, like, I, you know, I think like you don't really realize this until you're in the middle of it, but it absolutely plays like a Greek tragedy, right? So Shakespeare kind of takes his time. He's got five acts in his plays. But Greek tragedies happen fast, right? And they are relentless and they are unforgiving. And there's a quality of the first half of the Winter's Tale that is not unlike a Greek tragedy. And it is really extraordinary to see this extraordinary company on that stage kind of speaking those words. There is such an amazing kind of storytelling that's happening and rich, rich performances. And it's really thrilling to watch. It's like a, it's like a great classic Shakespearean tragedy on stage that unfolds in about an hour and 15 minutes. And then what happens in our intermission, which is the break between Shakespeare's Act 3 and Act 4, a thing that happens in Shakespeare's play that doesn't happen to this extent anywhere else is he fast forwards a full 16 years. There's no other time jump of this length to be found in the canon, but Shakespeare in The Winter's Tale fast forwards 16 years, and we find ourselves actually in Bohemia where his newly born daughter was abandoned. And she has now been raised by a shepherd and is a very sort of plain young woman. But she has fallen in love with the prince of Bohemia, the son of Polixenes, the boyhood friend of Leontes. What unfolds is what is essentially a pastoral comedy. And it's what turns the play which in the first half is really a tragedy. It's what turns the play into a comedy because by the end of it, Florizel, Prince Florizel and Perdita, Leontes' daughter, have run off. They've run away from Bohemia and made their way to Cecilia in the hopes that Leontes will marry them. And then they've been followed by Polixenes. And what ends up happening at the end of the play is like there's all these reunions and people get married. And then the big thing is that at the very end of the play, 
Hermione, who died at the end of Act Three, is resurrected. For Shakespeare, some plays are performed a lot. Yeah. Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, yeah, yeah. the Scottish play, so on and so forth. And some are not performed as much, such as The Winter's Tale. Right. Yeah. What do you think is going on with that? I mean, some of it is just audience, right? Like, why is Christmas Carol performed every year <laughs> over and over and over again? It's because people have a relationship with it. I think it's one of the great stories in the English language. But also people have a relationship with it in the same way that they have a relationship with some of the best known plays of Shakespeare's, right? We have a relationship with Romeo and Juliet. We know the lines from that play. We know Midsummer Night's Dream. We know Hamlet. We know those soliloquies. That's always going to be the case. There's always going to be certain works of art that capture the imagination of the corpus of all of us, right? Like we are there and we are there for it. What you get with a play like The Winter's Tale is something more of a pastiche. I don't know that this is true, and I am not an expert on this. You'll have to check in with Philippa about this. But I have always thought of The Winter's Tale, because it's a later work of Shakespeare's, as a bit of a formal experimentation, right? Like thinking about Shakespeare as a playwright who isn't just about writing extraordinary stories with extraordinary language, but he's also a playwright who in his later years was growing tired of the traditional form of the play. And actually in The Winter's Tale is experimenting, right? He's experimenting by putting, by, by mashing up these two very distinct diametrically opposed types of drama, right? You know, a psychological tragedy on one hand and a pastoral comedy on the other. And like, you know, and he's like, I think this will be fun. Let's see what happens. And he puts this play out there. And then along the way, what he does as well, and this is like, this is one of the games that I invite audiences to play with us as they are watching this play. There are within The Winter's Tale references to so many of Shakespeare's plays. Like there are, there are echoes of many of his other plays in The Winter's Tale. Right. Everything from the sort of the, the, the kind of jealous heart of the husband, you know, of Leontes. Right. And the way that he surrenders to it, to the young lovers divided by their two families, to And it just goes on and on and on. Right. And so it's a super fun game for those of us that are working on the play because we're like, oh, yeah, this is like this moment. This is like this moment. And it's actually in the text. And then the other fun thing for our production that I'll just I mean, I'll share with you because it's like folks will come and they'll see the show and they'll enjoy it. You know, our part two, the, what, what makes it an adaptation, the adaptation doesn't really happen until the end of the play. Until then, it really is just a very kind of, I would say, muscular and intelligent cutting of the script. But there is a production choice in the way that we approach Bohemia that I think is a bit unique. Because historically, in productions of The Winter's Tale, the kingdoms of Cecilia and Bohemia, they're viewed as kind of diametrically opposed kingdoms, right? You'll often see... Uh, Cecilia set in one period, and then the choice of Bohemia is the kind of like polar opposite of that. And it's just as a way of understanding how different the worlds are. So, um, so they tend to be very, very different. Cecilia tends to be very uptight, and Bohemia tends to be much more relaxed. There's more than I can count on my hand productions of The Winter's Tale that I have seen where like Cecilia is set in some kind of like uptight British upstairs, downstairs. Downton Abbey world, and then Bohemia is like, you know, you're transported to the 60s and psychedelia, right? That's a good example of seeing of how these two worlds are often treated. 
But for our production, there's something that Philippa said to me very early on when we were talking about the winter sale that I just was never able to let go of. And what she said was, there's a moment at the end of Shakespeare's Act Three when Leontes asks Paulina to lead him to view the bodies of his dead wife and his dead son. But that the way that it's offered in the play would have been suggestive to Elizabethan audiences of mystery plays, of the pageants, the medieval pageants of the time. And that what Shakespeare was doing in that moment was in a way speaking through the mouth of the character, his intention to lead the audience to something completely different, completely new. And so I got really obsessed with that idea. And I started to think about Bohemia, not as a kind of extant, unique kingdom 16 years later that we are transported to as an audience, but rather I began to think of it as a play within a play. And that was a kind of liberating moment. And by play within a play, I think the the prototype that we use is actually the play within a play from Midsummer Night's Dream. The wall, the lion, Peter Quince, you know. And we were really struck by this idea that actually the Bohemia was a play within a play. And there's a thing that we do with the production that is really about, I don't know if you want, I don't know if I should tell you because it's something that like might be interesting to kind of experience on your own first and then come back and talk to me about it. And you can, you can shout in my ear if you don't like it, or you can be like, oh, that was kind of cool. But the idea behind it is that we're really treating Bohemia as a play within a play. And we're focusing on Leontes and we're focusing on the journey of Leontes as um, a man who has committed this extraordinary harm and has spent 16 years trying to come to terms with it, but perhaps not in the most successful ways. And it really takes a kind of act of transformation to get him, and because he's a king, his kingdom, to a place where they can escape the past and begin to move forward. Eric King, to go to the Bruns, people need to bring... Uh, vaccination proof, uh, yes. COVID test proof too, or no? Because we are an outdoor venue and we do not have the same kind of risks associated, I believe, with indoor venues. What we are asking is either proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test uh, taken within the last 72 hours. All audiences will be required to wear masks in the theater. This is in an effort, and hopefully everyone will collectively agree with me on this, that we want to make sure that our artists are safe as they perform maskless in the course of the evening. Those are the two big things. Food and drink will be allowed on the grounds. And then I think as, uh, I think what we're asking folks to do is, you know, if they need to unmask to sip their hot cocoa, we ask them to do so efficiently. Make sure you're bringing your own blankets this year. On a first-come, first-served basis, folks who arrive and need a blanket can take one of our blankets, those lovely green blankets that we have. And then we're asking folks to just take them home with them uh, because we're going to be purchasing new blankets next year. And it's too much to try and deal with cleaning blankets over and over again because of this pandemic. The dinner bar will be open so we can eat up there? Yep. Keep an eye on the weather. Bring your coats, bring your blankets, bring your hot cocoa, bring your wine. Before we went on the air, I was asking about streaming and you are going to record this in case we have to shut down. Yes. As you know, and all of our theaters know, and hopefully all of our theater goers understand, is um, the times remain as uncertain as ever. And as such, we want to ensure that everyone can be as safe as possible. So we are 
going to be creating this recording of the production on those instances, and hopefully there will be none, but on those instances when we need to cancel a performance, either due to COVID or due to smoke or due to any of the number of other things that we are wrestling with in this really complex moment, we will have a, a streaming recording of the production available for audiences on those nights. Eric Ting, you're a parent, right? My daughter is six. And anyone who's ever had a six-year-old knows that they are unbelievably resilient creatures. And so like, so I keep talking about this kind of focus that we've had at Cal Shakes this last year on what it takes to be a resilient community. And I will say that the best lessons of this journey so far to date have been found in my daughter. Uh, looking ahead to future, are you planning right now the three or four shows for next season? We are planning all the programming for 2022, 2023, and 2024, which actually will be Cal Shake's 50th anniversary season. And we're super excited about all of the above. Now that streaming is kind of something that all theater companies are going to be doing year-round. Yeah, totally. Yeah, is Cal Shakes going to be going silent after this season, or is there stuff that you're planning to just do online? Yeah, we see it as an extraordinary opportunity, actually, and we will definitely not be going quiet after the summer ends. Our intention and desire is to become a, a regular part of our audience's lives year-round, and the gift of this moment has been that you know, these virtual spaces allow us a way of connection that don't require the Bruns Amphitheater. And we have many other plans afoot, Richard, and I hope at some point down the road, you and I will sit down again and we can talk a little bit about that as well. But from our perspective, we will be programming virtually. We will continue the Direct Address series. We will be doing um, a number of other theatrical events and readings, both in person and online. And I forgot to mention, actually, there was a program that we had started just before George Floyd's murder. And it was a program that we had been having great fun with, which we called Mystery Shakespeare Theater 1592. I don't know if you know Mystery Science Theater 3000, but that was full in a way the inspiration for it. And basically what it was, was it was, I think, bi-weekly, it might have been bi-weekly viewings of freely available old movie productions of Shakespeare's plays. So films from like the 50s and 60s and 70s. And, um, and we had a, a panel of artists, including Sophia Fredericks and Phil Wong, both of whom are in the cast of The Winter's Tale, and Philippa Kelly, our beloved resident dramaturg. And we would basically sit there and we would kind of comment on the performance choices. And it was great fun. That was one of the programs that was stopped by all the all. But I have a secret hope that we'll be able to bring that back. I just wanted to say that this whole last year and a half at Cal Shakes, we really couldn't have done any of it without the amazing support of our board of trustees, the amazing artistic community that we lean so heavily upon to make the art that we make, our patrons who have been incredibly supportive of all the things that we've been trying to do, and the incredible staff at Cal Shakes who have really gone above and beyond in super heroic ways to help us navigate this season in a way that feels filled with grace and intention and art. It's been really great to have such an extraordinary community surrounding us, and I'm really excited to be back in person.
You've been listening to an interview with Eric Ting, who is the artistic director of Cal Shakes, California Shakespeare Theater, uh, at the Bruns Amphitheater in Orinda. The Winter's Tale runs at the Bruns. For more information on that and to see what's online, you can go to calshakes.org. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next time on the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm-hmm.